All right, Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Well, we have left behind the demon locusts and all sorts of other interesting things. But chapter 11, it continues what we started in chapter 10. uh, Chapter breaks can be a little unfortunate because uh, sometimes we can forget where we came from. Uh, Jesus, at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, he instructed John to write down the things that would happen after these things, after the things of the church. And, And that includes the things that occur after humanity's last chance is up. We had learned last week that in Revelation chapter 10, the, you know, the angel said that there shall be no more delay, that when the seventh trumpet sounds, time is up. And that is the next trumpet that's coming. It'll be at the end of the chapter. We will not get to it this morning. But you think, well, the Revelation doesn't end with chapter 11. No, it doesn't. In fact, it's got quite a bit more. And the angel told John, he says, you need to keep writing. You're not done yet. There's more to record, even though humanity is about to have their last chance. And thus, chapter 11 of the book of Revelation uh, begins the rest of John's message. And so, it, it brings up answers to the question of like, what happens right around this last chance time? You know, when exactly is that time in the end times? When is it that is humanity's last chance? And The big question, of course, is, well, what is God doing during that time to reach those He died for? We know He loves everybody, so what is He doing during that time as humanity is going to have their last chance? What is the Lord doing? Well, it starts with two special preachers. But before we get to them, we need to look at why they're there. Chapter 11, verse 1, it continues what chapter 10, verse 11 said, keep preaching. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court that is without the temple leave out, and do not measure it, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot for forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy for a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Here we see, first off, why Israel needs these two preachers, because John is instructed by the angel to measure the temple. It says, and there was given to me a reed like unto a rod, the mighty angel of chapter 11. He's the one who's been interacting with John. He gives this measuring reed um, to John, and, and he he says to him, you know, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now, John had probably been sitting down as he was writing, and so the angel who had stood by him says, get up, and I want you to go and do something. Go and measure the temple of God. Now, there are two words for temple in the New Testament. One of those words refers to the entire Temple Mount region with all of its surrounding porticos and courts. That's not the word used here. This word refers to the temple proper, the building that contains the holy place and the holy of holies. It was a building with a roof. There were no open courts in that building. And only the priests could go in there. He wants him to measure that building. He wants him to measure the altar. This would be the altar of sacrifice that was in a courtyard just outside that building, okay? And then he wants him also to 
measure them that worship therein. Uh, so this is not some allegorical language that's being used here. This is not spiritual language that's being used. John is seeing a real building in literal Jerusalem with real worshipers present in it. Now, an end times functioning temple is a consistent theme of biblical prophecy. There was no temple in Daniel's day. Remember, when Daniel's, uh, uh, Daniel's writing, um, the Babylonians destroyed it uh, 16 years after taking him captive. But Daniel 9, verse 26, predicts that a temple will be rebuilt and then destroyed in the future by the Romans. So Daniel's writing at a time when his, the temple that he grew up with when he was a young lad is destroyed. He's writing it doesn't exist. And then God in Daniel 9, 26 says, and the people of the prince that shall come will destroy the temple and the sanctuary. They're going to destroy it. So it, there we know there's going to be a rebuilt temple, okay, future to Daniel, but it will be destroyed. That happened in 70 AD. Um, Daniel 9.27, the verse right after that one, then predicts that another temple will be rebuilt because the Antichrist will force the Jewish people to stop their sacrifices in that temple. So that's what Scripture predicts. There'll be a rebuilt temple after Daniel, will be destroyed, and then there will be another rebuilt temple in the end. Now, we are living in a time that's between those two temples. We are not living in a time where the first temple's to be destroyed. It was already destroyed in 70 AD. But since 70 AD, there has never been another temple. So this is a future event that Daniel 9, 27 describes and that Revelation 11:1 1 is also here describing. Jesus predicted that there will be a temple in existence during the end times in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. He says in Matthew 24, 15, and when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, uh, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus predicted that there would be a temple in the end times when the Antichrist was around, all right? Paul predicts that there will be a temple in existence during the Antichrist rule. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, referring to the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself or declaring himself that he is God. So this is the consistent teaching of biblical prophecy. There was no temple at the time when John wrote the book of Revelation. It had been destroyed 20 years earlier. So John is measuring a future temple that will be in existence during the Great Tribulation. This is why the fulfillment of prophecy of Israel's rebirth as a nation is so crucial. Because part of that rebirth as a nation will be rebuilding their temple and renewing their worship there. Now, while it is true that many modern Jewish people are very indifferent to a rebuilt temple, it's, it's not important to them. While that is true, there are factions in Israeli society who feel very strongly about its necessity. And thus today, if you go to Jerusalem, you could visit the Temple Institute in the Jewish quarter of the old city. They have replicated much of the holy objects for use in a rebuilt temple. They have trained a priesthood for serving in this new temple. In fact, uh, when me and Beverly were last in Israel, the golden menorah was on display, protected by guards in a glass case there in the Jewish quarter. Uh, you could go and look at it. So, 
course, there are big obstacles to Israel rebuilding their temple. Um, the Temple Mount is currently under the jurisdiction of the Jordanian government, even though Israel handles general security. Israel has agreed not to fly its flag from the Temple Mount. So you say, how are they going to build a temple up there if they don't even really technically control the Temple Mount? Well, it gets more difficult. In addition to that, while there are 12 entrances onto the Temple Mount, only ele- all 11 of them are only open to the Muslim public. In other words, there's only one entrance that non-Jews are permitted to enter through, but only, and they can only enter through that gate for four hours in the morning and only five days of the week. Groups are limited to 50 at a time. When we, we've no, I've never been on the Temple Mount because as soon as you get there in the morning, the line's all the way out and it's closed because you have to get there early enough because they only allow limited groups for limited time up there. Why would they do that? Well, this is because two mosques sit atop the Temple Mount. It is a place of uh, Islamic worship. The first you're probably familiar with, the Dome of the Rock. The reason it's called the Dome of the Rock is because it is built over what is called the foundation stone. This is a place considered by Jewish scholars, not Islamic scholars, but Jewish scholars, as the site of the Holy of Holies. It is considered the holiest site in Jerusalem by many Jews. However, Abid al-Malik, the first Umayyad caliph, he built the mosque specifically in this location in 696 AD to spread Islam in the region so that people would not ever associate it with the Holy of Holies, but it would be associated with Islam. That's the first mosque that's up there on the Temple Mount. The second mosque is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, built on the southern end of the mount uh, in the 8th century. It is considered the third holiest site for Muslims because they believe that's the location where Muhammad ascended into heaven. So you've got these two mosques, one sitting on the traditional site of the Holy of Holies and another one uh, further south on the Temple Mount, and there are Muslim worshipers up there regularly. So they don't want to create any ruckuses and all that kind of stuff, and so there's limited to non-Muslims going up on the Temple Mount. So how in the world is Revelation 11 chapter, chapter 11 verse 1 going to happen? <laughs> well, many people believe that something will happen to the Dome of the Rock. That, uh, for example, um, in Ezekiel chapter 38, it talks about how when the invasion of Israel occurs prior to the Great Tribulation, that it says that uh, many walls will crumble, Um, uh, many uh, buildings will crumble in Israel because of the earthquake that occurs. So some people believe, well, the earthquake will affect this. I I don't know if that's true. The Bible doesn't tell us that or not. Um, However, if this is indeed the site of the Holy of Holies where that foundation stone is, Well, that mosque is right in the middle of John's measurements here, right? So that would have to go, right, if that's the case. However, the rest of John's measurements seem to indicate that the Al-Aqsa mosque may remain in place. Look at verse 2. The angel tells him, but the court which is without the temple leave out and do not measure it. Now, a court is an enclosed area, and if you go back to John's day before the temple was destroyed, there were four walled outdoor enclosed areas on the Temple Mount in Jesus' day and John before it was destroyed. They had the first court, which I already mentioned had the altar of sacrifice, was called the priest court, an open area right next to the closed building where the holy place and the holy of holies were. Then you had a very narrow court right up against it called the Court of the Men. 
Then you had a very large court called the Court of the Women. And then finally, outside of that, all around the sides of the Temple Mount, you had what was known as the Court of the Gentiles. Now, the first three courts, the court of the priests, of the men, and of the women, were considered part of the temple compound that Solomon built, the very first temple, the one that the Babylonians destroyed. The court of the Gentiles was an extended area surrounded by uh, Greek porticos and colonnades, and Herod the Great's the one who built that. All four of these regions are without. They qualify for this outside uh, non-enclosed areas that the angel mentions. They're outside of the temple proper. But many commentators believe that this area that he's not supposed to measure refers only to the court of the Gentiles. Uh, Technically, all of them except the court of the priests could be exempt from John's measurements in that statement. But why do most believe it's the court of the Gentiles? Because it says here, for it is given unto the Gentiles. Now, it doesn't tell us who gives it to them. It doesn't say. It could be the Lord. It could be that the Lord is allowing the Gentiles to have control of this part of the Temple Mount. It is also possible that this is a reference to this area of the Temple Mount being given to the Gentiles by a world leader that makes a deal that allows Israel to rebuild their temple. That is possible. Okay, that explains the Al-Aqsa Mosque, but what about the Dome of the Rock? You still have to deal with that. There is an interesting twist to that problem, though. Almost all new archaeological research on the Temple Mount concludes that this stone, known as the foundation stone, inside the Dome of the Rock is not the site of the Holy of Holies. Almost all new archaeological… For example, if you go and you look at the Temple Mount, um, if, if you were a Muslim worshiper, you can go inside the caverns that are right below the Dome of the Rock and right below um, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. In fact, they're trying to build a third mosque there uh, because… Uh, This would eliminate any possibility of the Jews ever building any type of religious thing underground over there uh, on the temple site. Uh, So they're trying to do this, and there's lots of controversy about that. But if you go inside those caverns, there's nothing there. There's no murals. There's no paintings. These are very ancient places, but there's no, no, they're not very large. These corridors are small. And, And we know from history that the area underneath the where the temple was, was filled with these caverns that had lots of space for storage. Uh, just, uh, we know that Josiah the king hid certain uh, parts of the furniture of the temple in these, these places. Uh, we, we know that the, there are lots of murals and paintings and things like that under these things. And so recent archaeological excavations further north on the Temple Mount have found those sites. They found all these corridors and all these caverns which have all this stuff in it, but further north. And so this has led most of them to conclude that the site for the temple and therefore the Holy of Holies is much farther north on the opposite side of the Wailing Wall. And that, of course, then would eliminate the issue of the Dome of the Rock. So I don't know what's going to happen. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but something will be worked out where the Jews can build their temple and yet the Temple Mount will not be entirely in their control, which makes sense given the current events of Jerusalem right now. Now, John has to be wondering, if my countrymen are allowed to rebuild the temple at some point in the future, why would the Gentiles control a large part of it? Well, it's because Israel will have a mighty enemy who they thought was their friend. They have a mighty enemy who they thought was their friend. Look at what it says here. It says, and 
The holy city shall they, the Gentiles, tread underfoot for 40 and two months. The phrase tread underfoot means to subdue by force, to harm by subjugation. And they will subdue the city of Jerusalem for three and a half years, the last three and a half years of the great tribulation. While Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 tells us the Antichrist will make a seven-year treaty with Israel, it doesn't tell us what that treaty entails. However, some agreement about the Temple Mount seems likely to be a part of that treaty. Daniel 9.27 tells us that the Antichrist will violate this treaty at its halfway point. He will invade Israel, he will take control of Jerusalem, just like it says here, and he will seek to exterminate the Jewish people. And thus, for three and a half years, he will be in control of the holy city. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, we see that this is said elsewhere besides Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel 7, 25, it tells us, and he shall speak, the Antichrist, shall speak blasphemous words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He will think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, until a time and times and the dividing of times for three and a half years. Daniel 12, 7 echoes this same exact statement. And I heard the man clothed in linen, this angel who's speaking to Daniel, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and he swore by him that lives forever and ever that it shall be for a time and times and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. So we, this is not, not new information that the city of Jerusalem will be in control of the Antichrist for the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Now, therefore, John, don't measure that part. Because even though your people, your countrymen, will be able to rebuild their temple, something devious is in the works. That's why Isaiah chapter 25, verse 15, calls this treaty Israel's treaty with hell, their treaty with death. Now, we will get to that betrayal next week. But for now, John needs to record for us that the rebuilt temple will not be the same as the one that he grew up in. The future rebuilt temple will not be ordained by God. It will be built in unbelief because sacrifices will be performed for sin, even though Jesus paid for all of our sins on the cross. This is not a good thing that the temple's being rebuilt. It is an abomination to the Lord. And so because of that, because of that, God is going to send two people to preach the truth during those three and a half years of peace in Jerusalem where everything seems to finally be all right in Israel. We've got our temple. We can worship our Lord again. Everything's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> well, these two preachers are going to say, not quite. Look at verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy for a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. We see here what God ordains these two individuals to do. It calls them witnesses. It means one who testifies about the truth of a situation. What's the truth of this situation? This temple is not good. <laughs> this temple does not please the Lord. The offerings, the sacrifices, the worship taking place in this temple is not accepted by the Lord. These guys are going to step onto the scene and they're going to testify about the truth of what Christ did on the cross. They're going to testify of what the Scriptures have to say about worshiping the Lord. And God is going to give them power. Now, the word there, power, you may see it's in italics in 
your Bible, and that's because it's not in the original text, but we know it's true because verse 6 says these have power, and then it mentions what they have power to do. The word means authority, jurisdiction, the right to act. You see, while the rebuilt temple will not be ordained by God, these two men will be. These two men will be called by God. And what they will do, it says, is they will prophesy to speak forth God's words. God is going to call them to speak forth the truth of the matter in regards to the temple, in regards to Israel, in regards to Jesus. They're going to speak God's words, the scriptures to them. Now, when will they do this? Well, it says for a thousand two hundred and three score days. That is also three and a half years. Now, the question, of course, then, well, the three and a half years just mentioned, the 40 and two months, are the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. So, what three and a half years is mentioned here? Is this the three and a half years that the Gentiles will subjugate Jerusalem? Some take that view because of context. They say, well, the last three and a half years that are mentioned in the verse just before it are the last half of the tribulation. But there are problems with that view. You see, we'll we'll get to this next week, but at the end of this three and a half years, it says that these two witnesses, they will be killed by the Antichrist, and the world will celebrate their deaths for three days by going shopping. They're going to have a Christmas in whatever month it is to celebrate that these two men are dead and we don't have to listen to their nonsense anymore and we don't have to experience the judgments they bring upon us because we won't listen to them. There will be a worldwide celebration over this for three days. But we know what happens at the end of the Great Tribulation. Is there a three-day party for the lost? Not at all. It says at the end of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist will be taken by Jesus. He will be cast alive into the lake of fire and that the entire world will mourn. So these two events cannot occur at the same time. There cannot be the Antichrist being captured and killing the two witnesses. There cannot be, you know, a celebration for three days, and yet the whole world is mourning because judgments arrived. There cannot be. Those are incompatible. Therefore, this must mean that these two witnesses preach during the first three and a half years of the peace treaty before the Antichrist violates it. And what is their message? Well, we already mentioned what they're going to preach. It's God's Word. But here we get an idea of their message. It says they're clothed in sackcloth. What is that about? Well, the clothing of sackcloth is for mourning. It's for repentance. In Luke chapter 10, verse 13, Jesus says that if other cities had seen the miracles He done in the city He was preaching in at that point in time, I believe it was Capernaum, he said, if other cities had seen the miracles that, that I've done in your midst, they would have repented by donning sackcloth and putting ashes on their head. You see, when someone became aware of what they'd been doing, that it was awful, that it was wrong, that it displeased the Lord, they would take this goat skin or this camel skin, they would turn it inside out. Anybody ever, you ever go to a petting zoo and you go to pet a goat? That's not a pleasant experience. Like, I mean, you go up and you think, oh, it's a goat. It's going to be all, you know, the, the, the skin and the, and the fur will be nice and fluffy like my dog or my cat at home. No, it's coarse. There's, it's, it's harsh. There's nothing soft and fluffy about a goat. Same thing, I, I have ri, ri, ridden. I have ridden a camel. I have not, the camel did not allow me to touch him. He definitely did not want me to touch him. They are quite temperamental. And so they've got their skin is coarse. It's hard. So sackcloth is goat skin or camel skin t- 
turned inside out. So it's, it's, it, 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 does, it does not comfort. It's not comfortable. It does not create a sense of, oh, I'd like to go take a nap. All right? It, it is, creates a sense of this is uncomfortable. This is itchy. This is not fun. This is not what I want to be doing. And you do it on purpose because you're reminding yourself that the situation you're in right now is not good. Lord, that where I've been has not been good. And they would sometimes sit in a pile of ashes and they'd put them on top of their head. And the idea is you're communicating to everybody, I've been doing something I shouldn't be doing. I've been living a way I shouldn't be living. And my heart is broken over what I've realized. And I don't want to do this anymore. These men, when they come to speak, but they'll be showing God's people, the people of Israel, is that God's heart is broken over your unbelief. His heart is broken over your unbelief. His heart is broken over your defiance towards His grace, towards His Son. And so He sends these two to tell Israel to repent and to turn to Christ for three and a half years. Now, such a task like this would take two pretty amazing people, don't you think? I mean, these guys are going to be in the, in the heart of opposition, right? They're going to be preaching in the heart of opposition. So who are they? Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. You say, well, that's not helpful. Turn to Zechariah 4. The, the phrase here, these are the two olive trees and two candlesticks standing. The word standing there is in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means a completed action in the past with ongoing results into the future. In other words, John is writing down here that he is referencing something we've already seen, something familiar to us, something from the past. And in Zechariah chapter 4, we see this exact image. In Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it reads, And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. And he said unto me, What do you see? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it. Now the word there, candlestick, is the word for the menorah. This is the golden menorah that was in the holy place that had seven stems, had the one in the middle and three on each side, okay, with seven lamps, seven bowls on top of it. He says, I see the golden menorah, but it's got a big bowl on top of it. And his seven lamps are thereon. And seven pipes are feeding into these seven lamps from this bowl. And the two olive trees are standing on each side of it, one upon the right side of the bowl, one upon the left side of the bowl. What is this? Well, we need a little bit of background here. Who's Zechariah, first off? What's going on here? Why is an angel talking to him? Well, Zechariah was a prophet uh, to those who had returned from Babylon after their captivity, captivity there. It was an exciting time to be a Jew, but also a difficult time because of the challenges in rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple and their home life. And so God had given this prophet Zechariah visions to encourage Israel's civic and spiritual leaders. Israel's civic leader at this time was a man named Zerubbabel. 
Zerubbabel was David's descendant. He would have been king if Israel was allowed to have a king at this point in time. Israel was not, and therefore he was a civic leader, but no king, all right? Zerubbabel is Jesus' antecedent. Jesus was one of his descendants. The spiritual leader at the time was one of Aaron's descendants. His name at this time was Joshua, the high priest, all right? And so Zechariah is writing to encourage them to keep at the work, don't be discouraged, God's going to finish what he started. In fact, this is where the verse, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, where that comes from. He said, you're not going to accomplish this task by more manpower or more resources, uh, Zerubbabel. The Spirit of God is going to accomplish it. Don't despise the day of small things. So many good verses come from this chapter that we often quote. Well, in this vision, Zacharias sees the golden menorah from the temple, but instead of the priest having to regularly supply its seven lamps with oil, which is something they had to do daily, here he sees two olive trees to each side pouring oil into a bowl that is then constantly piping it into those stems, keeping the menorah lit constantly. And so God uses his vision to send Israel's leaders a message through Zechariah. Don't be discouraged. God's going to finish this. He's by his Holy Spirit going to finish the work that you've started. Now, because of that, this vision paints a picture of two Israeli leaders, the olive trees, although I'll explain they're not the olive trees in a second, Two Israeli leaders that God will anoint with his power to accomplish his work, rebuilding the temple, right? So when we look at this image, look down here in, in verse, uh, verse 11. Then answered I and said unto him, this is Zechariah speaking to the angel, where are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said to him, because the angel doesn't say anything, what be these two olive branches? And he explains, he asked the wrong question the first time. The angel's not going to answer who the trees are. He says, but the branches, I'll tell you. So he says, who are, the, who are the branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered and said, do you not know what these be? And he said, no, my Lord. And then he said, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So the idea here is that when we look at this picture, we look at this image in the Old Testament, it's about two of God's leaders, Right? It's about an anointing concerning the temple in some way, right? That's what we know from this chapter here. That's what this image speaks to. Now, we do need to note one important phrase from Zechariah 4.12 that I already pointed out. Zerubbabel and Joshua are not the olive trees. They are two olive branches that come from the olive trees. Why is that important? Because the olive tree is the national symbol for Israel, all right? Each tree here is representative of God's anointed leaders in the civic and the spiritual arena. Two, rep- two, one, two branches of that spiritual and civic arena are Zerubbabel and Joshua, but they're not the whole tree. So with that in mind, let's return to Revelation 11 and note a few interesting differences between Zechariah 4. In Revelation 11, it does call the two witnesses the olive trees. It says these are two olive trees. It also mentions not one, but two menorahs that God pours into. All right? So now we need to ask the question, why two menorahs? Well, if you remember, the golden menorah in the temple was a reminder that God was Israel's constant light and that they were to reflect that light to the world, to a world that didn't know the Lord. So 
Is it possible that this speaks of the two witnesses preaching, and it's not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentile world also? Two menorahs, they're preaching to the Israel who does not know the Lord at this time, who is not in faith. They are there in the land in unbelief, like Ezekiel 37 predicts, right? But they're also preaching to the Gentiles. That's the best I can come up with. I don't know if that's the case, and we can't know for sure uh, because it doesn't tell us, but it works for me. I am more confident, though, when I ask the question, why does it mention two whole olive trees instead of them being just two branches? And the reason is, well, let's ask another question. Who from Israel's civic and spiritual leaders best represents the entire nation of Israel? Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, right? They represent all of Israel. And interestingly enough, both men are mentioned in the final prophecy of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4. In Malachi chapter 4, we read it in our scripture reading, but it says in verses 4 through 6, speaking to the people living during the end times, remember ye, remember all of you, the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Oreb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn. What is their job? They're preaching repentance. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse, which is what God's going to do when everyone's last chance is up, right? So we know this prophecy speaks of the end times. We know that Moses and Elijah are mentioned during that prophecy. So are these two witnesses Moses and Elijah? That is my personal belief. I'm not going to fight with you over it. Some suggest, well, it's, it can't be Moses. It's, it's got to be Elijah and Enoch because these are the only two individuals in Scripture who've never died. That may be true, but there's a problem with that. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, you can read it yourself, it makes it very clear that Enoch was taken to heaven so that he would not taste death, not so that he could come back and die someday. It says he was taken to heaven so that he would not taste death. Now you say, but yeah, but Moses already died. In Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So some say it can't be Moses, that that rules him out. There's a problem with that, though, because many people in the Bible were physically resurrected and then died again. Lazarus, right? One of the craziest parts of the entire Bible to me is Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and when the religious leaders get together and talk about it and said, we got to kill Lazarus too, man. He just got back. Let's have another birthday at least, you know? So there are numerous individuals that were brought back to life who had died, and then they died again. So the my point is, I don't think uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 is a document, you know, is a, he's saying, and I need to let you know that everybody can only die once, you know? No, it, the thought is, as trying to be conveyed is, listen, there's no second chances after death. You, you don't get to trust in the Lord after death and go, oh, well, I blew that one. Can I have a second chance, Lord? No, your time's already up. That's the point that's being made here. No one is going to be brought back who didn't know the Lord to get a second chance. But Moses could be. Moses and Elijah were present with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So clearly they had some role to play even after their earthly ministry. 
And it's my personal belief, again, I won't argue with you on it, but it's my personal belief that their role still isn't done. So, of course, could this just be two individuals that are alive during that time period and have no connection to Israel's past? Certainly. We should not be dogmatic about it. But what these two witnesses do, besides preach repentance, leads me even more to believe that they're Moses and Elijah. And and to find out why, you need to come back next Sunday, (laughs) because we're out of time. So, we're out of time. Well, we may just get baptized by going outside today. All of us, all of you baptized in the name of Jesus. What's the point? I mean, it's a great information. Learn some stuff about the Temple Mount. Learn about these two witnesses. What's the point? The point is, God doesn't leave the world without a witness even in these darkest of times. Even in humanity's last chance, God does not leave the world without a witness. So here's the application to us. Are we living in the darkest of times? No. It's not humanity's last chance yet. We are living in a day of grace. We are living in a time where there's still time, right? We're living in a day of salvation. We're living in a day of grace. And so he doesn't need these two witnesses right now to do this job because he sent us to be his witnesses right now. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, he said this to his disciples. He said, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. That's who we are now. We are witnesses unto Jesus, not just in Jerusalem, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even unto Orlando, Florida, the uttermost parts of the earth, right? Or wherever you're from if you're visiting today. The uttermost parts of the earth, here, right here, you and me, we are his witnesses now. And he has called us to a task. You know, it's very interesting when we look later in the book of Acts, and I'm going to leave you with this this morning. We look later in the book of Acts, and, and Philip is told, Philip is an evangelist, he's ministering in Samaria, and people are getting saved left and right. It's a huge revival. They got to bring down, uh, you know, some of the, the bigwigs from Jerusalem to come down because, you know, uh, Philip's going, man, these people need to be discipled. I, I, I can't do it all. And so they come down, and, and, when, and when they get there, they realize, man, these guys haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so they, they pray for them. They're baptized with the Holy Spirit. More people are getting saved. You know, they're being good witnesses there. Philip's in the middle of revival, and the Lord tells Philip, he says, hey, I want you to go down to Gaza. And, uh, Phil's probably thinking, Gaza, all I know that there is desert. And the Lord's like, yep, go down to Gaza where there's desert. Nothing there, Lord. Well, there's going to be somebody there, and I want you to go down there. So Philip goes down to Gaza, and he's just waiting on the Lord. And as he's down there, this guy, this Ethiopian eunuch, comes with his retinue. He's an Ethiopian politician. He, he's been visiting Jerusalem, and, and he's traveling back home. And as he's traveling back home with his retinue, the Lord tells Philip, hey, why don't you go and jog alongside the, the guy's chariot? And so while he's walking alongside, you know, talking to some of the people probably around there, he overhears this guy reading from the Scriptures. And so he says, hey, do you know what you're reading about? 
And the guy goes, how can I unless somebody explain it to me? And so Philip comes into the chariot and he starts explaining the scriptures to this guy. Guess where this guy is? He's in Isaiah 53. The, the passage of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah that talks about Messiah suffering to die for our sins. And so Philip preaches the gospel to this guy. And guess what? He decides to believe. And while they're talking about this, the guy asks him, he notices there's a body of water nearby, and he says to him, he says, hey, here's water. What keeps me from being baptized? And Philip said to him, if you believe with all your heart, you may. I mean, if this is real to you, if, you've, if you really believe, and, and, you, and you want everybody to know it, because that's what baptism is. Baptism is when you are publicly declaring your faith. You want all your retina here to know that your old life is dead, and you're following Jesus now. If that's your confession of faith, nothing prevents you. And so the Ethiopian eunuch answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so they went down and he got baptized. That's what baptism is about. It's about sharing your faith, publicly declaring your faith. You want everyone to know, I'm a Christian. I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm following Jesus. And so if, you, if you've never been baptized, you've never been obedient to the Lord and taking that step of faith, it's, it's something you need to do. If you have done that, then, then here's the thought for all of us who have. And for those of you who you know, may be getting baptized later, the thought is this, let's be faithful witnesses, amen? Let's keep sharing our faith. Let's keep living in such a way that shows Jesus is living inside of us, that we follow Jesus, amen? amen. Let's all stand. Oh Lord, we recognize that you have called us in the same way you've ordained these two men, whoever they may be, Lord. That while they have a specific task to preach the good news of repentance towards sin and faith in the Lord Jesus, Lord, we have been given that responsibility. And Lord, if, if they could do it in a, in, a, in a city that's gonna be almost 100% hostile toward them, in a day and age where almost all the world is killing anyone who says those things, Lord, then surely in a day of grace, we can do the same. Surely in a day of grace, Lord, we have the same ordination from you, the same calling from you, the same commandment from you to go and make disciples of all men, to preach the gospel, the good news, that if we'll repent of our sins and trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we can be saved. Lord, we want to be faithful witnesses. And so I pray for all my dear brothers and sisters here this morning that you'd baptize them anew and afresh in your spirit, that you'd give them that boldness that you gave to those original disciples, Lord. You'd give us all, give me that boldness, Lord, that when we interact with our city, with our neighbors, you know, with, with all the people in our sphere of influence, that we would feel compelled, that your love would compel us, your spirit would compel us to preach the gospel, Lord, to preach the gospel. Well, that in a day of grace, many might become part of your kingdom, part of our family. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for sending someone to share the gospel with us at some point. Please, break our hearts that we might do the same. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.